Hebrews 13, coming to the end of the book of Hebrews. Let's begin with a word of prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, this morning our hearts do proclaim, great is thy faithfulness. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Heavenly Father, we know our hearts and our weaknesses. We know how desperately we need your strength for today. How desperately we need your mercies that you promise us are new every morning. How desperately we need your grace to endure and to grow. And so, Heavenly Father, we pray that you would do as you have promised, that you would give us mercy new every morning. That you would provide for us the grace that you have promised even as you have promised in 2 Peter 1, that you have given to us all things for life and godliness. Even as we will see in this passage this morning, that in Christ you have made us complete in every good work to do your will. So, Heavenly Father, strengthen us for today. Strengthen us for today. Give us your grace. Help us to see that bright hope that we have for tomorrow. Even as we turn our attention to this passage, as we come to the end of the book of Hebrews, may your spirit work in each and every one of our lives through your word, even in the closing prayer of the book of Hebrews. Mold us into your image. Work in us for your glory. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. It was a little over a year ago that we launched into the book of Hebrews. In fact, it was a year and uh, almost two months ago. And I began, as we began going into the book of Hebrews, I noted that as we were jumping into the book of Hebrews, it was, it was a little bit like preparing to climb a mountain. There's a little bit of fear there. But there's also excitement, is there not? As you stand at the bottom of this great achievement that's in front of you, this mountain to climb or whatever it may be. There's intimidation there. There's fear there. And yet there's excitement. You know that the views will be glorious. That's how I felt as we launched into the book of Hebrews. It is a rich book full of deep theology And yet, as a preacher, it's incredibly intimidating. This morning, by the grace of God, as we stand on the pinnacle of the book of Hebrews, worked worked our way through this book to the very last passage, I think that we can say that it is a glorious vision that we behold by the grace of God. In fact, what we'll find this morning, I believe here in the end of chapter 13, is that the end of the book of Hebrews is is extremely appropriate. I don't know if you've ever picked up a book. I I hope you've picked up a book. Uh, But some of us like to start at the beginning and work our way through. We like the progression of the book. 
Some of you probably like to pick up the book and just jump to the end. You want to know what, what happens at the end, and then you'll jump back and work your way through, but you already know the ending. The book of Hebrews, if you were to do that, kind of gives away the whole point of the book here in the last five verses. In fact, we could have done something else for the last year and a half and just studied these last five verses, and we'd have been good. We'd have got the point of the book of Hebrews. But I'm glad we didn't do that. So as we come to this passage, I think that we'll see this morning how perfectly appropriate it is. It is both a reminder and a challenge. And as we work our way through this, what we'll see is that it is all about the grace of God. That is the message of Hebrews, brothers and sisters, the grace of God. And so we'll see that this morning as we work our way through this closing prayer and then a parting challenge. The first thing we see here is a closing prayer. And it's really just the first two verses, verses 20 to 21. It is a, it's a short prayer. Right? Have you ever sat down to lunch and someone prays and they just go on and on and on and on? And, and there's a lot of good things in there, but at the same time, your, your stomach's grumbling, right? You're ready to eat. Sometimes short prayers are good. And this context... This is a short prayer, and yet it is a short prayer that is packed with truth. In fact, the context coming out of verses 18 to 19, in verse 18 of chapter 13, the author of Hebrews says, Pray for us. We're confident that we have a good conscience in all things, desiring to live honorably. But I especially urge you to do this, to pray for us, that I may be restored to you all the sooner. I want to come I want to visit you. I want to see you. I want to minister to you. So pray for me. Pray for those with me. And so then as he comes now to verses 20 to 21, now he prays for them. And it starts out with this phrase, Now may the God of peace. Now may the God of peace. What we'll find as we work our way through this passage is that that second word, that, that little three-letter word, may. We think of that word as, as kind of a request. May God do this. And I think what you'll see as you work your way through this passage is that this is not a request. Rather, it is a statement of confidence. It is not, God might do this. I'm hoping that God does this. In fact, what he is saying here, as we'll see as we work our way through these two verses, is he is saying, God will do this. His prayer, the question is not, what will God do? The question here is, how will you respond? God will do what he has promised. That's not the question. But will you submit to God's will? Will you submit to God's purposes? God will do it, but may you submit to him. As he does that. May. The God of peace. Really the idea here is. He is the God who gives peace. And when you think about the context. Of the book of Hebrews. We've worked our way through this. This congregation. We're not exactly sure where they are. Somehow they're associated with Italy, as we'll see in this passage, even as the author of Hebrews says, the saints in Italy greet you. So maybe they're in Rome, maybe they're in Jerusalem, maybe they're somewhere in between. They're somehow connected to Italy, we know that much. 
But what we do know is that they are under threat of persecution. We've talked about it all throughout the book of Hebrews. They are being pulled on both sides by one side by Rome, which is threatening to persecute them, and the other side by Jerusalem, that is separating from them and persecuting them in their own rights. Under the threat of persecution, how comforting is it to know that God is a God of peace? He's writing to a people who do not know peace on earth. But God is a God of peace. On Sunday nights, we've been working our way through the book of Ephesians. Is that not what we've seen in Ephesians 2? Is that God is a God of peace. He's brought you from death to life. He's brought you, these two separate peoples, Gentiles and Jews, He's brought you together in peace through Jesus Christ. So that, having brought you together, He can make you have peace with God through Christ. He is a God who gives peace. Jesus Christ is called the Prince of Peace. Philippians 4, verses 4 to 7, where you have Yodia and Syntyche who are, are arguing. And Paul there says, I urge you to get along, to rejoice in the Lord always, and not to worry, but to pray. And God will give you the peace that passes understanding. That's, that's what these people need, right? Because there is no peace in their world. There's no resolution to the problems that are plaguing them. It would make no sense for them to have peace in their hearts. And yet in Christ, they can have the peace that passes understanding. The peace that makes no sense to the world around you. The peace that maybe you don't even understand how you have this peace. Because God is the God of peace. In fact, he goes on to explain how it is that God is this God of peace. He's a God of peace and he's a God of power. In fact, the peace that God gives comes by the power of God as displayed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, as you see in this next passage. May the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead. How is it that he is the God of peace? How is it that he is the God who gives peace? Because he is the God who redeems. Because he is the God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. In fact, as you look back through the book of Hebrews, the resurrection is central in Hebrews. I don't know if you caught that as we're working our way through the book of Hebrews, but time and time again, the author of Hebrews goes back to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection is central the book of Hebrews. You can go all the way back to chapter 5, verse 7, 
where Jesus cried out to God and he was saved from death by resurrection. Chapter 6, verse 20, Jesus enters the heavenly sanctuary as the resurrected, exalted Lord. Chapter 7, really building off of Psalm 110.4, this priest after the order of Melchizedek, this priest forever, that is Jesus, he's a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. How can that be? Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. His uniqueness as a priest, we see in chapter 7, verse 8, is the fact that he lives and ever lives to make intercession. Chapter 7, verse 16, he has an indestructible life as proven by his resurrection. Chapter 7, verses 23 to 25, he remains forever. He always lives. Chapter 1, verse 3 and 8, verse 1 and 10, verse 12 and 12, verse 2, he has risen and ascended to the right hand of the Father. The whole argument of the book of Hebrews is built on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, it is that resurrection of Jesus that proclaims the superiority of Jesus and guarantees the hope of the saints. Is that not the message of Hebrews, that Jesus is superior? And how does he show that? Because he has risen from the dead. Brothers and sisters, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is everything. That is why Easter is such a big deal in the church. It's not just that we serve a crucified Savior. There are, there are lots of religions around the world whose leader died. That's not what sets us apart. What sets us apart is that we serve a resurrected Savior. That he lives today forever to intercede. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 to 9, Paul says, I, I suffered and I preached the gospel the gospel of a resurrected Savior. Brothers and sisters, that is what sets us apart. That is the power of the gospel, that our Savior lives. So that's why the author of Hebrews starts here as he's bringing this to a close. This closing prayer that really sums up the entire argument of the book of Hebrews. May the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead. Without that sentence, the book of Hebrews and the gospel is empty. But Jesus lives, and so we have hope, a God who brings peace. He brought our Lord. Notice the personal nature of that. My Lord and your Lord. Our Lord is risen from the dead. And who is this Lord, Jesus? He's the great shepherd of the sheep. And that might seem like kind of an odd way to describe Jesus. You might think that in the context of the book of Hebrews, you would have said, you know, who rose up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great high priest. He says, the great shepherd of the sheep. 
the one who died, the one who lives, the one who cares. In fact, Jesus is the fulfillment of Ezekiel 34, verses 23. Likely, this is the, the verse that the author of Hebrews has in mind here. In fact, I invite you to turn over there with me to Ezekiel. Thirty-four, verse twenty-three. Talking about God as the true shepherd, and yet there is one coming. Verse twenty-three says, "I will establish one shepherd over them." And he shall feed them. My servant David, he shall feed them and be their shepherd. Who is this one shepherd from the line of David? Is it not Jesus Christ? He is the shepherd of the sheep, the one who was prophesied beforehand, the one to whom we have been looking and waiting. He is the fulfillment of all of God's promises, the new and better David. In fact, Jesus himself in John 10 identifies himself as the good shepherd who knows his sheep and the good shepherd who does what? Who lays down his life for the sheep. This is our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the Son of God, the one who lays down his life for the sheep. In fact, that's what the author of Hebrews goes on to say here in his prayer. The God of peace who brought our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep. How has he done this? That word there, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. It's really a, a connector word. It is the reason. How is it that God raised Jesus from the dead? Why did God raise Jesus from the dead? Because of the blood of the everlasting covenant. Jesus rose victorious because his blood was effective. The resurrection of Jesus Christ guarantees certifies that his death was accepted. It is the blood of Jesus that accomplishes what the law and the sacrifices could never accomplish. We've seen that all throughout the book of Hebrews. All throughout chapter 9 and chapter 10 that the blood of bulls and goats cannot forgive sin. It's the blood of Jesus that was shed that establishes the new covenant. He was risen from the dead by the God of peace because the blood of the everlasting covenant. Because of his everlasting blood that pleads for us. Jesus rose victorious because his blood was effective. It accomplished what God sent him to do. He has done what the law could not do. What the sacrifices could not do. 
And so, brothers and sisters, we serve a God of peace. A God who has made peace between God and man. A God who has made peace between Jew and Gentile. The Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, coming to accomplish the purposes of God. And so here in this, really in verse 20 alone, we see the book of Hebrews summarized, do we not? Jesus Christ who died, his blood that was shed, that brings about the everlasting or the new covenant. God who raised him from the dead. Certifying, guaranteeing our hope. But what does this mean? Why has God done all of this? Look at verse 21. Verse 20, we see God's provision for you. He's provided all of this for you in Jesus Christ. He's the God of peace. But look at God's purpose in you. Why? May the God who has done this make you complete in every good work to do his will. May he make you complete. Notice it doesn't say, God has done all of this. He set you in the right direction. He's waiting for you at the end. Now may you get there. May you work really, really hard and be really, really good. And then at the end, you'll make it to where God is. He's provided for you. Now he's waiting for you. Go to him. That's not what it says. It says that this God who has done all of this will make you complete in every good work to do his will. Your resurrected Savior has secured for you a total and unending salvation. You are totally equipped. 2 Peter 1, 1 1-4 tells us that God has given us all that we need for life and godliness. We were reminded of that even last week with Pastor Strope. God has not left you wanting. He has given you everything that you need. You are fully equipped. You have been made complete. In what? In every good work to do his will. There's a purpose to your salvation. We see that even in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, do we not? Again, a passage that uh, Pastor Strope touched on last week. You have been saved by grace, through faith. Not of works, lest anyone may boast. You've been set apart to good works that God prepared beforehand. Good works to do his will. You've been saved for a purpose. To do the good works that God has set apart for you. Not saved by those good works. Notice the order here. It's very important. He's made you complete in every good work. Not, he's given you good works to make you complete. He made you complete. That part is done. You have been set apart. You have been made new. Your salvation is fully provided for. Your sanctification is fully provided for. You have all that you need. So now go 
and do the good works that flow from that. There's an expectation here of growth, of progress. Towards what? To do His will. He has called you to this. He's equipped you for this. He's given you all that you need to do His will. And He is working in you. He made you complete in every good work to do His will, working in you what is well-pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ. Working in you. It's an ongoing process. You have been saved and you are being changed. He's working in you through Jesus Christ. Again, this is not your work in yourself. It is God's work in you through Jesus Christ. He has saved you. He is changing you. Your sanctification is as secure as your salvation. So hold on in faith. Endure. That's one of the themes of the book of Hebrews. The idea of endurance. Yes, life is hard. And persecution will come. And you will stumble day after day after day. You will fall down. But get back up because God has fully provided for you. Get back up because God is working in you through Jesus Christ. Endure. Convinced in faith that the same God who saved you is at work in you for your good and His glory. Convinced in faith that the same God that raised Jesus from the dead is in work, is at work in you and will raise you to on the last day. Whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, do you see how this, this prayer summarizes the whole book of Hebrews? Look at what God has provided for you. A Savior whose blood is effective. It brings the new covenant as promised. It has established that. He has risen from the dead. He is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek forever. You are fully provided for. Your God of peace has done this. Therefore, as we've seen in the last two or three chapters of Hebrews, live, live like you truly are a citizen of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Live like that is true. Live like your salvation and your sanctification have fully been provided for. So a closing prayer that summarizes the book of Hebrews. A closing prayer that calls you to endure. Finally, a few closing thoughts as well. A parting challenge. My clicker's not working. There you go. A parting challenge. 
And I appeal to you. We know that word appeal. We've heard that before, right? Appeal. I'm, I'm pleading with you, brothers and sisters. Hear this. Hear this. Pay attention. If you're sleeping, wake up. I appeal to you. Bear with the word of exhortation. Bear with the word of exhortation. It's really an interesting sentence that we, we have here, even as it goes on, for I've written to you in a few words. That's almost laughable, a few words. <laughs> We've been in this for over a year. What do you mean a few words? And it's really all the more kind of funny when you recognize that that language, a word of exhortation, is really the idea of a sermon. The book of Hebrews is a sermon. And apparently, for the early church, this was a short sermon. But he's pleading with them to bear with the word of exhortation. Hear it and receive it. Pay attention and respond accordingly. This past week, Hurricane Ian hit Florida, as you know. I've been praying for those in Florida. You know, I was watching the news one night this week. Uh, I think it was actually an afternoon at lunch or something. I was watching the news, and they were interviewing some people who had chosen to stay. And uh, the water was right up to, the, to their floor, and they're standing out on their porch. I mean, there's water. All, they are in boats. There's gators swimming around in the water. And they're just standing there casually on their porch. And the interviewer's asking them, why did you choose to stay? Why didn't you heed the warnings? And one of the guys said, well... I don't know, I didn't really want to go, plus my two cats are here, and a bunch of others are like, your two cats are there. This was a serious storm, you could have lost your life. Just take your cats with you, they're not that heavy. Do something. But heed the warning. They weren't joking when they said a storm was coming. But we can't laugh at them too much because we do that here in Iowa, do we not, with tornadoes? How many of you kind of stand outside and watch as the sirens are going rather than going down into your basement? You're not heeding that warning. To pay attention, to respond accordingly. Bear with the exhortation. Listen. We've been in this book for over a year. Don't let it go out one, in one ear and out the other. It's not just an exercise that we do every morning on Sundays to sit down, open the Word, all right, we got that done for the day, we can go on about our lives. There is no going on about your life after you've encountered the Word of God. You should not leave the same. Something should change. And that is what the author of Hebrews is pleading. I appeal to you. Hear what God is saying. Bear with the word of exhortation. I think that's a, a question for us this morning, brothers and sisters. In fact, let me, let me ask you, let me get really personal with you this morning. Let's take this out of the context of the first century. Let's put it in our context. And let me ask you a question. 
what would it look like for you to bear with this word of exhortation? What would it look like for you to live like Hebrews is true? We say we believe that. But do we live like it? Do you live like you are a citizen of a kingdom that cannot be shaken? Do you live like the blood of Jesus Christ was effective for you? Do you live like you have a high priest in heaven ever pleading for you? Do you really live like Jesus is superior? Do you really live like that's what really matters? Or do you get caught up in the things of this life? Do you get distracted? As you look back over the last year, have you seen any change, any growth in your life as we've been working our way through this passage? Much less, Lord willing, hopefully what you're doing in your devotions or Sunday night or Wednesdays. But have you seen any change, any growth, any sign of life? I would add my plea with that of the author of Hebrews. Brothers and sisters, bear with this word of exhortation. Hear what God is saying in his word and respond accordingly. For I've written to you in a few words. Again, it's, it's kind of funny. And yet at the same time, is that also not a rebuke to us? I think I've told the story before. The illustration of the time I, I went to India with my grandpa. He was preaching in a Bible conference over there. And so we, we went and it was him and three other pastors. And we sit down in this little chapel for the first service of the morning. They have one morning and night for a whole week. So the first night we get there, I think it was Monday night we get there, we settle in, there's three pastors up on the stage, and they're all preaching in English, and so there's an interpreter. If you've ever sat in a service with an interpreter, it goes twice as long, because everything has to be repeated. And uh, the first guy gets up there, and he preaches a full sermon, 30, 30, 40 minutes. Then he sits down. This little chapel we're in, we're on those little white outdoor chairs, plastic chairs. It's hot, there's no air conditioning, all the windows are open. He sits down. I am dying. I am sweating. I'm ready to get up and leave. Thankfully, it's over. We sing a last song. I'm getting ready to leave. And then the next pastor gets up. And he speaks a full message. Then he sits down. And then my grandpa gets up and preaches a full message. Three full messages every morning and every night. Literally like a three and a half hour service. We spent seven hours a day. And let me tell you, it was a rebuke to me as a young man. Because I'm sitting there, I'm complaining, I'm miserable, and yet I look around me at these college students, some of them who have walked days to get there, who are soaking in every word, thriving under the preaching of the word of God. And it had a big impact on me as an eighth grader. Wow, these guys really think this is true. They really believe the word of God. And yet we can't sit still for more than an hour. 
This is a rebuke to us. Do you love the Word of God? Do you respond to the Word of God? Do you act like the Word of God is really the Word of God? There's a few other things as he brings this passage to a close. Really, it's an interesting... I, I love to read history. I love studying history. I like the end of this passage. It just seems like a, a kind of a neat glimpse into the first century church. The author of Hebrews is, is telling them some news. Your brother, Timothy, by the way, he's out of jail. Timothy, this is likely the Timothy that we know from Paul. The Timothy who pastored at Ephesus. We don't know the circumstances of Timothy's arrest or release. It's nowhere else in Scripture. And here we have a fascinating peek into the New Testament church. Timothy was in jail for some reason. He's been out. Here's, here's some news. He's out. And Lord willing, he's coming and I'm coming with him. And we can't wait to see you. But in the meantime, greet all those who rule over you. And all the saints, those from Italy, greet you. Grace be with you all. Amen. Grace be with you all. It's a common closing to a New Testament epistle. And yet it is deep in theology and comfort. Grace be with you all. Sometimes as kids, you learn the thing about grace. It is God's riches at Christ's expense. How you remember what grace means. God's riches at Christ's expense. And really that one word sums up the message of Hebrews. Grace. Brothers and sisters, all of this is yours, not by might. Not through cunning. Not on merit or not with wealth or not with anything else. But only in and through Jesus Christ and his finished work, the author and finisher of our faith. In this book, his superiority has been shown. His effectiveness proven. His power displayed and his grace known. And so brothers and sisters, endure. Endure. It is grace that has saved you. It is grace that is at work in you. And it is by the grace of God alone that you will be brought home. It is by grace that you can endure. So endure. Heed this exhortation. Know who Jesus is. Let that strengthen and comfort and encourage you. As I mentioned at the beginning, the message of Hebrews is the superiority of Jesus Christ. And therefore, the effectiveness of his sacrifice. The application of the book of Hebrews is to therefore endure. Yet even as we are reminded of this morning, the, the endurance that the author of Hebrews here speaks of is not static. It is not just endure where you are, but there's an idea of growth here, is there not? We're reminded of that even in verse 21, that God is working in you, in his prayer. He is working in you what is well-pleasing, the idea of growth there. 
It is an endurance that does not fall back, but that makes steady progress by the grace of God. So, brothers and sisters, my question to you this morning is this. It's not just are you enduring. It's not just are you barely getting by. But are you growing? Are you heeding the exhortation? And if not, what is holding you back? What's holding you back? As we come to the end of Hebrews, whatever it is that is holding you back, Jesus is better. Whatever it is that is holding you back, it is not worth it. See what Jesus has done. Know who you are in Christ. And endure. And grow. And thrive. As a citizen of a kingdom that cannot be shaken.